when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? Welcome to the Waypoint 101 for Clay Games, Mark of the Ninja. I'm your host, Austin Walker. And joining me on this roundtable, this mysterious, hidden, secretive, stealthy roundtable, the elusive Danielle Riendo. Hi, Mark. I'm Ninja. The clandestine <laughs> Rob Zachney. <laughs> I did not do it. I did not put them up. The furtive Patrick Klepek. It's Clay Entertainment, not Clay Games. Thanks. You know, we're off to a great start today. <laughs> doing good. They do more than just games. You know, they do entertainment. <laughs> it's uh, beautiful their, uh, animation. It is beautiful great, animation. It's great true. Great at animating it's true. things. Uh, we are here today. To we are here. We've gathered here today <laughs> to pay our respects <laughs> to either. Uh, you know, I will say right now, we're about to spoil this game. We're going to talk full spoilers, Mark of the Ninja, uh, the 2012 Clay Entertainment joint. We're here to pay our respects either to Mark the Ninja, who mm -hmm. took his own life at the end of Mark of the Ninja, mm -hmm. or to the corrupt leader of, of the clan, the Hisomu clan, who we killed in, with our inky blade. Uh, pay our respects, you yes. know, whichever Respect choice you made at the end. Um, so you know, we picked this game partially because we wanted to do something that was uh not just like another shooter we've done a lot of shooter on waypoint 101s also because i think mark of the ninja was one of those games that popped up during the beginning of of the kind of 2010s independent games quote-unquote renaissance um that brought in a lot of people to the idea of playing a game by a small team um and one that i think brought people to a stealth genre uh or to, to the stealth genre a, a genre that i think put a lot of people out because of its inability to be clear about information and going back into Mark of the Ninja, for me, the thing that I was curious about was would its big triumph, its its ideas of clarity, readable, not just UI, but game world uh, uh, and, and kind of interesting mechanics that all went around clear information still work? Um, and for me... It largely did. I'm curious for for the rest of you on the on the cast. Did you play this game back then? And what was your your impression then? And then and then briefly, what was your impression this time through? Danielle, let's start with you. Sure. So I actually never played it, which is weird uh, because oh, wow. it's yeah. so in my wheelhouse. It really is. Uh, but weirdly, so I didn't really play a ton of stealth games before Dishonored. Mm. Dishonored was my sort of entry into the genre, and this came out six months maybe. It, I know it was the same year, but I'm pretty sure this one was actually predating Dishonored by a little one tiny month. bit. One month. Yeah, they're oh both my god. Fall 2012 games. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um. So, and I actually didn't play Dishonored until a little bit after Dishonored came out. So whatever, whatever. Um. But so I didn't actually have a ton of experience with this game. I I sort of knew Chris Dolan through the sort of Boston indie game world mm -hmm. a little bit. Chris Dolan was the narrative designer on this game, gotcha. so I was familiar 
with this game. I was familiar with sort of what it looked like, what it played like, uh, but I'd never actually played it until, you know, last week. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. My sort of high level take was this is a really fun, interesting stealth game. Uh, the story didn't necessarily land for me, which I'm sure is yeah. something we'll get into. Uh, but gameplay wise, I really enjoyed uh, the stealth and I really did enjoy that sort of readability. Of course, I'm coming into this right after Into the Breach, which is like for me the high bar of perfect information to the player for making yeah, yeah, decisions yeah. and so on and so forth. So that's like a pretty, I think I, I think I am, do not have a low bar for that sort of thing. So I was impressed uh, by how well this played in, in that regard. I also should say I didn't finish it. I put four or five hours into okay. it. I feel like I got a good chunk out of it and I enjoyed it, but I did not finish it. So that's my high level. Rob, your your lips are pursed. You you have your finger. You're, you're, <laughs> well, I'm curious. It's been it's been a challenging art. So I did play it when it came out. Um, yeah. So years and years ago, Nels Anderson, uh, the lead designer on this game, led a really great panel at I think like the very first PAX East uh, when they were still when they did it at like the Heinz Convention Center about like indie stealth games. Mm -hmm. And this game came up, and so did um, Monaco. Yeah. Um, yes. What's what's yours is mine, mm -hmm. uh, which had a very different take on stealth, but the, it was a really good talk about like what it was to make a modern stealth game. And at the time, nobody really knew that there was actually an immersive sim stealth game renaissance around the corner, right? So yeah. to a degree, this game I think was made in the middle of this desert uh, for for this kind of game design, right? Like. Nobody could get the looking glass band back together, but at this point right. you had a new generation of designers sort of hearkening to that era. Uh, and Mark of the Ninja looked like the most promising uh, project there, and certainly to my tastes, uh, it was the most successful stealth platformer. It's interesting to me because I got it when it came out, and I played through like a few levels, and I fell off of it, I think. I fell hmm. off of it around the mid-game. And what surprised me here coming back to it is I basically followed that same arc with the difference that I pushed through the mm -hmm. point where I started to fall off it. And what's interesting is I was really happy I did because I think this game starts off worse than it finishes. This is a game that I think builds and crescendos. It layers in new elements, new mechanics. The puzzle difficulty increases and you get more comfortable with a pretty elaborate control scheme. And so I had this weird arc where probably my first three, four hours playing this, I was kind of having this feeling of, I should not have suggested this. <laughs> this was perhaps a poor decision. I am not sure this game holds up. Uh, I am very bad at it. It is frustrating. <laughs> I am not having a great deal of fun. And then in like the last week, it really started to click with me. And I flipped completely over into, damn, this is the clay entertainment that I really wish that uh -huh. I really wish we had, right? Like, man, Mark and the Ninja and Invisible Ink just all the way down. What a what a flourishing of stealth creativity <laughs> uh in this period. And so I, I came all the way back around to being really impressed and delighted by a lot of a lot of this game. And particularly the game it sort of unfurls into being once you have mastered the controls and unlocked a lot of your tools yeah that 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 is definitely a big part of it. and we'll talk about where that turn happens i think too patrick how about you i know you were a big proponent of this back oh in yeah the day, i was a mark of the ninja stand back uh yeah the giant bomb um this game uh was a huge favorite of mine when when it came out um as someone that uh largely like i played the thief games i played a lot of uh, stealth games but um i always find myself so frustrated, you know, very much a quick save, quick load sort of mentality <laughs> um, because 
uh, you know, I, this is something um, I think that came up in, in Dia's review of uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, which is also a game that has a stealth action dynamic, is that, you know, the, the, the stealth is only as good as the action component that's connected to it. And so what Mark the Ninja suggests is actually, like, what if there's no action component? Like, there's only <laughs> the stealth component. Um, and it also quickly identifies, like, the main pain point of... A lot of stealth games, like let's use Metal Gear Solid as, as, as like I think a lot of people. I mean, Thief is something that works for all of us, but I think Metal Gear works for like a larger group of people. <laughs> um, Metal Gear in the stealth portion is really enjoyable until you're caught. And then, and this is, you know, certainly pre-5. Uh, I think 5 made that a little bit easier. Also having the big open world uh, mitigated some of this. But it was a lot of like sneaking around. Now you're caught. Now go hide under something and wait for the clock in the corner to go down, right. the 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 you know the, the the troops go back to their patterns, and then you can resume whatever it is that you were attempting to do. And so you're basically you're punished into a waiting period for possibly minutes at a time because of a, a, a small error. And so Mark of the Ninja, what I uh, yes the readability, yes the fact that everything's very clear um, helps you navigate that space. But also one of the things that I really enjoyed was that when you're caught and you get shot at. You just fucking die. Like, yes, you can get away. It is possible. You can, like, if it's one-on-one, you can you can try and knife a dude and, and get away with, like, a really clumsy kill. But, like, by and large, the game functions in a, in a binary sense of you are in stealth or you are not, and then you die, and then you try again. And so even if you – or even in the case where you are, like, briefly spotted, it's 10 seconds, 5 seconds. They don't chase you across the map. It's, like, a very contained – it's a game that identifies – what people like about stealth, and then all the things that that genre was not identifying when the stealth part breaks down, and then thinking through, well, how do we make the stealth part more enjoyable, last longer, and allow people to do more of what they wanted to do? Because so many stealth games are, okay, I have in my head, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, yep. and then it doesn't pan out, you get caught, and then it's frustrating, and either shoot everyone in the room, or you have to hide around a corner for a couple of minutes. Or Mark you go, I guess the thing I was supposed to do was this other was thing. This, this is the right. one solution. I'll do yep. my one solution. Yeah, and this is a game yeah. that sort of, I think, like very much its design ethos is identifying pain points in the stealth genre and then trying to come up with solutions. And I think you can see how everything the game does is derived from that like larger ethos of like what are the, these, what is the pain points in the genre, and then how do we solve them? And I, I think even now. Uh, it's it like holds up remarkably well. It's, yeah, it starts so blah 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 blah. But I, you know, once you kind of get over that that hump, I, I, it is still I think a really tremendous accomplishment. That uh, while it has its own pay points that are true of any game that you're coming yeah. to years and years later, I think absent that, um, I think this is a game that you can go back to, even if you. It's not a it's not a nostalgia fueled appreciation. I think there are things about it that that remain steadfast and interesting and make it a fun game to play where by the time I was in hour four or five here, I wasn't just playing it because like, oh, I got to make sure I got my talking points for what we're going to do in this conversation. (laughs) I was like, oh, this game is just really good and and it holds up remarkably well, especially once you start getting the tools and you have more options as a player. Yeah, I I think, you know, it's funny you talk about the like quick failure, like, okay, hey, you're spotted, you're dead. Or for me, you're spotted, I hit pause I hit restart checkpoint because there's very, very generous checkpointing yep, in this game. That part is great. And there's a, yeah, yeah, there's a point at which it starts to feel like Tony Hawk's Pro Ninja where it's just like, <laughs> yeah, this is a bad run. This is a bad run. Stop, pause, restart, quick load. Like the, the load yep. is very quick. And like that is not a, 
that is not a small thing in games like this. In any, you know, you, you compare it to something like Super Meat Boy or, or like really difficult platformers where like, no, I want to be able to just get back in the saddle and try again. And this game really encourages that. And I also think, and, and maybe for me, this is one of the complaints I had going back into it, especially up top when I was trying to be a completionist, is like Tony Hawk Pro Skater, you care about your score. Um, yeah. And I will say that especially at the top when you don't have a lot of tools unlocked, there are behaviors that I found myself performing because I wanted the points so that I could unlock the point, the like XP or whatever I needed to get gear and get a get uh, upgrades more quickly. And I was doing those for the reward more than because they were good behaviors. So for instance, oh, I'm going to go ahead and drag a guy across yes. the map so I can put him into a great, I, yeah, that system does not <laughs> yes. hold up particularly well. I think it, it would have been better served by yes, like moment to moment rewards, but it's that it's, that's the, to get yourself over the top to get that third. Yes. Yeah. So like it, the structure of the game is that you are, um, you have these like sub goals, like, Hey, take out 20 lights, uh, put five guards into a dumpster. Um, but on top of that, you are, you're given points based on execution of various kills. So if it's a, if it's a stealth kill, plus it's a stealth kill where you do the short quick time event, which is a button press and an arrow right or left, uh, you get more points. And then if you take that body and then successfully hide it, it's even more points. But often, I would say maybe 70% of the time, the game has a very convenient location for you to dump the body because it's keeping in mind like, oh, it's a score-based game. So we want to make sure that we're keeping yeah. – the, the level design is is keeping that in mind at all times. But then there's that 30% where like, <laughs> no, the, this, this, this portion has three enemies and – Maybe you maybe the game was suggesting you could just move on, but it's the score thing. So you want to try a solution to whatever the, the the AI puzzle is, find a way or find a way to exploit it so you can kind of just make it work. And then dragging them all, like throwing them over things to try and get <laughs> yeah. them at extra 150 points. And that part is not great. And that's one of those that's or it's a pain fine. point of it's, it's one of those it's fine, but it's like, annoying and it takes me out of it. I want to do that because it's the right maneuver, not because it's the way to get most points. In Hitman, I do it because if someone finds his body, I'm fucked. Yep. And most of the time, because the levels are are fairly linear, um, no one's going to stumble onto these bodies unless I'm in the middle of clearing out an area. Whereas, like, the thing that I end up doing is, like, not only do I drag people, like, into the grates or, or wherever, I will straight up make sure someone walks under me so I get the 200, I've bypassed the guard yep. point. Like, little things that, that are encouraged. And, and I'm not, this isn't, again, I, I really did enjoy my time with this. And what, especially the thing that ended up happening was I started to get the tools that made dealing with enemies more exciting and more fun. And at that point, I was focused on coming up with interesting solutions. And so I, I was getting the points I needed anyway. I wasn't as worried. I would absolutely start just leaving corpses, <laughs> just lying out in the sewer. Like, you know what? You're just fucking We're here. We're skipping some areas. I found myself at certain points looking at sections where, all right, there are three enemies here. This is clearly like a high level like encounter to clear out, but there is very obviously like a grate that goes under them, mm -hmm. and right. I can just dodge this entirely. Right. And what, what, once you learn after a couple hours is, look, you're going to be able to get all, mo you know, most if you want to clear the whole tree, then yeah, okay, you're gonna have to engage in all this sort of like chicanery in order to to to, to maximize your points. But generally, you can kind of just stick to the main path and, like, do most of the stuff, and you're going to get most of the upgrades. And I found once I started embracing that, I I liked the score system to a point, but then it, it hit – there were certain yeah. things where I had to walk myself back, and I actually wish the game was finding ways to walk me back instead of pushing me into, like, really uh, annoying habits that had me playing the game in a, in a 
not maximally fun way. It was a maximally efficient way. Yeah. And I don't, those are not necessarily the same thing. I think this is kind of the crucial part about the arc I went on with this game. Now that like here, like as we talk about this, what also happened in the last week, I realized I needed to finish this fucking game. Yeah. <laughs> like prior to that, I had been really score chasing, right? Like, especially because those early levels at each, at the end of each level, there are the three objectives that you can complete for like special bonus points. And they're pretty achievable in those early levels. And the early levels, it is surprisingly, ex- like, it feels within my grasp to do the ghost run in those levels yeah. and get all those good achievements. And so then I sort of got it in my head that I wanted to have these like perfect, maximally efficient runs. And I did start getting to the point where I was ruining the game for myself. If somebody even spotted me, I was like, well, that run sucks. I'm just going to stand here and let this guard walk up to me and shoot me to death. What happened in the last week is that I started uh, basically just like, you know, Play it as it lays, right? Oh, those right. guards spotted me. Uh, up to the, you know, up to the ceiling. Uh, zip across. Like, yeah, there's guys shooting at me. Oh, went straight through the laser fencing. Uh, that's <laughs> fine. Uh, there's a turret now shooting. Uh, I think a rocket just killed something. I don't. It's fine. And like, eventually get across the room into a place, and I sort of regather myself. And it turned out that is actually a fun way to play too. It is fun. The version of Mark and the Ninja where you're just kind of a mediocre ninja. Like, you have a big skill set, but a lot of it is about escapability right. and just creating chaos to, like, get out of trouble. That is also a fun way to play this game. Maybe the most fun way to play this game. But everything in the game, when it comes to the scoring scoring screen, incentivizes this really uh, meticulous perfectionism that can make this game feel punishing and a little bit frustrating especially because it's like you're controlling a really sticky metroidvania character yeah and it can be really tough to make what feel like they should be pretty basic sorts of jumps over enemies to not be seen and your character will glom onto things you do not want them glomming onto just because that is the nature of the way your character moves through the level and relates to surfaces totally Danielle. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I normally play stealth games way too much and way too perfectly. Right. Not perfectly. It, to be clear, I, I went through all of Dishonored 2 never killing anyone, but I got yeah, seen so, a bunch yeah, of times. Like, yeah. I don't actually care if they see me as long as I can knock them out, put them in the recovery position and make a pyramid of bodies right, that are just right. sleeping and cuddling each other. I'm having a good time. But it didn't seem like there were as many options or as good options for like a non-lethal playthrough the way I... I mean, yes, yeah. okay, if you went all stealth, I guess the way I'm talking about it, like, not all stealth, but all, like, humane. Right, right, right. Exactly. No, like, there's no, not, you're, you're there's not a lot you're of knocking people. them out and, no. like... There is eventually, uh, so there, in the in the remaster, yeah. and maybe even the special edition that came out years ago, there's a DL, there's a uh, a, a side option, sure. or there's a side story that you can do that is about the tattoo artist, and if you complete Ooh. that, then you unlock a different costume that gives you a non-lethal option. Okay. So you just got to do that. You got to go gotta, back. I got to go through that way. And then it's all like, it's all chops, and I think it only knocks people out, and they can be woken back up, okay. or like unstaggered, or whatever. Which is fine. Yeah, totally. But you'll be moved on by then, because you're, exactly. you're a ninja. I'm a totally. cool ninja but i i played this and maybe it's just because it's so different maybe because it was a 2d game as opposed to a 3d game which i'm very used to that sort of first person perspective mm. in a stealth game because again i came to this genre late right, right. i play a lot of dishonor i play a bunch of hitman obviously not you know necessarily the same uh, point of view there but 
a lot of that sort of paradigm of like, okay, it's totally fine to knock people out and just kind of put them in away. Right. Uh, I just played this like chaotic mess of the ninja, which is like <laughs> I I enjoyed and had fun with, and I was like, wow, this is different enough for me to just be a disaster all the way through yeah. these levels, and I'm still enjoying. It. Awesome. Mess uh, of the ninja is my favorite episode of tidying <laughs> up. Yeah, perfect, <laughs> great. Uh, before we, um, before before I have to cut out, actually, in about fifteen minutes, ten minutes, I wanted to read a comment from the the uh, the form and and touch on some of the story stuff. This comes in from from uh, vehemently, who says. Um, so before getting into the meat of the stealth in this game, I do think it's worth talking about two questionable elements about Mark of the Ninja, the portrayal of Japanese culture and the ending. Keep in mind, it's been a couple of years since I played it. Mark of the Ninja is about ninjas, so it's going to dabble with Japanese culture. I don't think this is necessarily always problematic, but I do feel a little uneasy about some of the themes in this game. I mean, the game starts off by talking about uh, seppuku, and you collect a bunch of ancient scrolls with death poems on them. Uh, I recollect... Uh, I re I recollect a lot of talk of honor and clans and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think this was doomed from the get-go. And honestly, some of it works, but some of it just feels fetishistic. Uh, I'm also concerned about the implica implications of the quote-unquote insanity caused by the ink. Regarding the ending, it's revealed that Aura, who is your kind of um, your kind of ninja partner through the game, your your it's not a mentor, but she's kind of your guide. She's your, the voice in your head as you're exploring yeah. the levels and giving you objectives and stuff. Uh, it's revealed that Aura is actually a hallucination caused by the ink. My concern here is the trope of madness and insanity. I think it would have been fine if Aura was shown as the ink incarnate, or that the madness is the ink. Uh, the madness is the ink of a of a corrupting force. But from my recollection, it's treated as a case of psychosis. I think this becomes even worse when what is often considered the good ending is where the player character chooses to go through with the uh, seppuku uh, and stop that madness, which has some bad connotations. I definitely read that ending as the bad ending, but that's probably just because fuck the corporate ninja overlord right. who ends up being the bad guy um, or who ends up being revealed to have been kind of pulling the strings all along. But I, but I did, uh, there was definitely, I think the word uneasiness feels right here, which is like, it's a game about ninjas. Like it's gonna be a game in which there are ninjas and there are ninja clans and there are there are uh, you know there's gonna be some talk of loyalty and fealty. Um, but I still there is still a degree to which and I think the things I did really well. I love the idea of this modern ninja clan that is going up against mercenary groups. There is something that played for me with that. Um, Especially because, like, the Ninja Clan then makes the decision, we are going to become a mercenary group. We are going to take this technology. We are not tied to the past in this way. Um, but there was something that was just – it was sticky in a way that I think – there. I, and I went and looked. There weren't many conversations about this at the time. And I think that that suggests a, a pretty big change in the last seven years of games criticism because today I think we would have a lot of conversation about the degree to which – a Western studio, a Vancouver-based studio telling a story about Japanese uh, uh, ninjas. Like, to, to what degree is that appropriative? How, how do you do that in a way that is successful versus a way that uh, kind of is reductive and, and really is just repeating a bunch of old tropes? Um, and I'm just curious for, for y'all, like, did you have that uneasiness? Is there anything that worked for you that you were surprised that it worked or, or vice versa? Well, I think aesthetically it does a lot of work to make it go down a little bit easier. Mm. I think the really, really heightened, stylized kind of style, and Clay always does amazing things with animation. They're, totally. they're known for having beautiful art, beautiful animation, really, really awesome stylized sort of graphics. Um, I think that worked for me in terms of making the story go down a little bit easier, perhaps. 
there is still an uneasiness and and I do think some of that and maybe I gave it a little too much of a pass for being like oh this game is almost 10 years old at this point you know being like okay whatever this was so long ago and I just sort of was enjoying the game so much that I almost you know and and that's maybe my failing a little bit but I do think it was so pretty and that sort of cyberpunk ninja style absolutely was so much fun to kind of play in and play with and it and it did so many things for the gameplay in terms of its visual design in terms of its readability that i was like it's fun Mm. we're having a great time (laughs) again not defending (laughs) that that read necessarily it might not have been uh the most in-depth or uh sensitive read that i had at the time yeah for me it's not that like you shouldn't make games about ninja right it's it's one of those things like okay well what are you doing with this with this canvas and with this palette are you really just like going to paint those same four character tropes that exist in in many western versions of ninja stories where it's like oh this is like the the uh cynical master this is like the silent protagonist this is the the ancient like tattoo artist like there there's a degree of familiarity with those things I mean, we, we before we started recording we were talking about how we all grew up in ninja turtles right like there yes. is we i have loved ninjas for as long as i've loved anything um and so like it appeals to me in a big way, but I but there is a degree where it's like, okay, well, where is that line? And I don't think that this crosses that line. Right. I think there's a degree of like, I think part of it is the swiftness of the game. It doesn't linger and it isn't, it never feels to me like it is attempting to say something about. The story is so unimportant. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it feels I, I don't remember there, anything. Right? I don't remember. It is there. I, and I'm not saying that you should – I'm not dismissing readings of it, that, uh, of its problems. I'm just – I don't remember anything of the story and plot from yeah. back then. I skipped all the cutscenes this time. <laughs> One thing I would say about uh, Clay is that I think – given how thoughtful the studio has been in the past, I would also think they would maybe have a different approach. Get, yeah. Like, the, the arc of – how we're talking about how we talk about games, I think there's also an arc to how games are made. You know, that's uh, not me trying to, you know, give them a pass on it either. It's more that, like, this is a studio that, for example, I wrote a stu- uh, an article for Giant Bombball Clay in which um, in Shank 2, they did a patch where they took out a cutscene in which a character um, uh, made, like, a threat of sexual assault. Um, It's just sort of an offhanded thing, and they just removed it quietly. And I did an interview with them talking about, like, why they took it out. Um, And they were, like, very upfront, you know, and uh, about how they later came to realize that was, like, unnecessary and made people uncomfortable. Um, And so they are a studio that is, like, sensitive to those issues. Um, I I guess that's all to say. One, I think it would just be approached differently from a creative standpoint, like, 10 years later. And that also – I wasn't paying attention to it, which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Rob? I mean, I think I rec- like I recognize the validity, validity of the critique. Also, though, I relate to this game as sort of, it's a, it's a weird thing. The game isn't necessarily, it, it's playing with tropes of Japanese culture, but also it's playing with the tropes of other media that frequently just, use these tropes right and left and established a lot of them as tropes, right? Like this is a game that in its presentation, in its style, in its, in its tone is also about not ninja, the actual like historical characters, but ninja, the fucking, uh, 
fad icon that they became in games throughout like the 90s right where right. like suddenly ninja were in D&D and they were the right. best character class ever uh the, you know <laughs> in so many video games you're some different flavor of ninja uh maybe you're not even a stealthy ninja maybe it's a it's a crazy bullet hell type you know combat right. game right. Yeah. uh that's still kind of what this game is playing with and so i end up in a place where i don't have a great answer for that because on the one hand uh it's taking lightly some tropes about another culture on the other hand there is so much media and it is woven into so much like so much the fabric of a lot of things in games that is it playing with other culture is it playing with games culture i don't know and Mm. there's i i haven't i i can't prize those apart very easily I will say I'm a little firmer on the insanity stuff here where I'm like, ah, I just wish the final act of this game went a slightly different direction. That stuff, like, bugs me in a a, a much deeper way. Um, It's basically a plot from that terrible X-Files episode where uh, Jodie Foster was the voice of a tattoo that made uh, Dana Scully lose her mind. Wow. Yeah, that was an episode. Jodie Foster. Pacific Northwest. I think maybe it's all connected. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to believe. That's um, what it was. I'm going to leave you because I have to go to a meeting. But two things. One, I'm going to I'm going to leave you with this thought, which is I really love the developer's commentary. If you play the the remaster that just came out last year, play with the commentary on. There are little icons all throughout the map that you can hit with the shuriken, and it'll just like pop up a, a text thing to read about yes. the way the lighting was developed or or the way this combat encounter was put together. And that stuff is super fantastic as someone who's really interested in there being more opportunities for developers to to uh, to hit the the um, to, to show the way that their work happens, etc. Um, and the second thing I'm going to leave you with is a break. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to hand off hosting duties. I'm going to throw them up in the air. And whichever ninja is quickest can grab it and, and take well, You over. can hit three things at once, though. So I'm going to throw six things up then. Oh. <laughs> and then I'm going to throw a smoke bomb and I'm out. Wow. He's gone, everybody. 
Mark of the Ninja unfolds basically as a series of challenge rooms. And now there are specific challenge rooms you go into at various points. You go in to get a collectible uh, where you deal with basically like a puzzle. But I think most of Mark of the Ninja structure is a series of puzzles with different steps. And what ends up becoming my relationship to these spaces, to these puzzles, is there's a recon phase, uh, which is pretty standard, where you're kind of looking around and just seeing where are the guards going, what are their patrol routes, what are the line of sights, uh, what, what are the lines of sight on various detection uh, items in in the room. But once you commit to going through one of these sequences, especially as the game continues, there are not a lot of places to bail out of a run going bad. There are not a lot of recovery uh, locations where you can stop, gather yourself, and reconsider how you're tackling this. And this, to me, I think is a major difference between, say, this and Dishonored, if we're making that our frame of reference. In Dishonored, uh, it sort of follows a pretty standard uh, 3D self-pattern where you can always run like hell and just <laughs> get the get out and escape back to where you came from. There are still specific locations that you sort of need to solve and figure out, but by and large, there's frequently, you're not bounded by the dimensions of this puzzle box they're putting you into. In this, once you kind of commit to that run, it always kind of felt to me like at that point, you basically were a dancer. You had to go through your choreography that you'd sort of put in your head beforehand. And if you blew it, the run was kind of going to collapse. There wasn't a way to sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube. You were either going to just raise hell until you somehow got to the other end of the room, or you're going to die. And those were kind of your options. That's how the game ended up feeling to me as opposed to other, uh, particularly 3D stealth games. I'm curious how this came across to you and whether you think that's a fair assessment. I know one way uh, that I was reading Nathan Grayson's original review of this in Rock, Paper, Shotgun from... 2012 and the way he sort of put it exactly not not exactly but I, I love the metaphor he used it was I felt like a bull in a china shop who had to like elegantly dance among the the towers of plates which I think is like the perfect metaphor for how amazing that feels and also how devastating it feels when you don't thread the needle absolutely perfectly yeah and I really appreciated the fact it's not just novel that it's a 2d game like it leverages that in very specific and interesting ways. And as a player, I enjoyed that because I I enjoyed the limited boundary box, the limited possibilities, um, because it made me, I had a better understanding of all possible scenarios for something to play out in, in, in which it's, you know, when you're playing in a Dishonored or a Deus Ex or any of the other 3D games in which like it's constantly, these games are constantly encouraging like out, often outside factors or, or things random events to sort of intercede on what you're doing as the player. Like, Mario the Ninja is, like, very strict and very structured, and you only have to go through a scenario, fail once or twice, and you sort of have an understanding of, like, where everything is going to go. And you may not have the elegant solution figured out yet, but at least you you know 
what your what world you're playing in and, and and what your responses are going to prompt from the other actors who are are in this box. And I, I liked that limiting factor. I liked the fact that each was like a tiny little puzzle that you're poking and prodding and then executing a possible solution on. And the fact that it's a 2D plane by virtue of it being just left or right. And yes, there's up and down, but there's not much vertical movement to the enemies you're dealing with. It's often you're the one that gets to take advantage of the verticality. I, I liked the fact that it was this very limited set that you were that you were playing with because it just gave me a better the lack of randomness allowed me to often both be more creative and to just sort of enjoy the moment more because I just knew more of what was actually happening in the scene as opposed to wondering well oftentimes when you play these 3D games like Dishonored or Prey or whatever well you could do the same thing twice and shit the AI might do something different and that's part of the appeal and so like the, the reductive nature of Mark the Ninja, this more si- simplified nature of Mark the Ninja, is something I actually enjoyed because it was it was it was a much more uh, predictable um, in a way that I think benefited me as the player in terms of like some of the actions I ended up taking. One of the sort of framings in my mind that I was going into this with was: Is this an immersive sim? And we can talk about that later, of course. But if it is, and if it fits on that spectrum at all, it does feel like it's on the extreme left. Uh, or whatever. One side. One side is here. The, the other pro- side the pro- is... The progressive immersive side. <laughs> right, right. Okay. One side. Maybe it's just up and down. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, one side of the equation. The other side is prey, which is probably the most wide open, ridiculous amount of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And right in the middle is Hitman, or the modern Hitman. The modern Hitman's... Hits, Hitsmen? Whatever. Yeah. Uh, which has... A much more limited set of possibilities, but it is still a 3D space. It does still have many solutions to sort of every type of puzzle. And I really, well, obviously Prey is my favorite and it always will be probably. There is an appreciation that I have for this simplified nature. There is an appreciation for this as more of a puzzle game or maybe a puzzle experience of an immersive sim than it is a sort of full-blown immersive sim or, or fully sort of immersive stealth game, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I think... There's there's a few things happening here. One is that a lot of times in a 3D stealth game, particularly, I think Hitman's a great example to bring in here. Hitman often feels like you you think you have made progress on figuring out the puzzle, figuring <laughs> out how this part works. But what you're actually dealing with, it is a 3D game, and in fact it functions like a Rubik's Cube. The thing you've been staring at for the last 15, 20 minutes <laughs> reconnoitering It turns out that once you sort of commit to that solution, you begin to go through that portion of the level that you are certain you figured out, like, this is this is my way through. Frequently, you discover that there are other dimensions to this problem that you have not seen. You get through this one place, this one location and realize suddenly you're looking things from a different perspective and you realize that all those things you were doing before to set up this this one transit through sequence in the level has completely screwed up what you need to accomplish for this next sequence. I think this happens in other 3D stealth games as well. Dishonored sometimes, you just commit to going across an open space and it turns out there's something really unforeseen and nasty waiting on the other side that, you, that was really tough to see. But... In either scenario, you end up in these places where uh, it turns out you just didn't have a clear view of the puzzle. Or the puzzle is so freaking complicated. It is so expansive and there are so many moving pieces 
that it is just very hard to keep it in your head. You don't. Well, you, impro- improvisation, like the surprise is meant to prompt improvisation. Yes. And that is part of the gameplay dynamic. Mark of the Ninja, there is no improvisation. You flail when you, fa- like, you know, there are moments where it all goes wrong. I've got one guy left and you can fucking pound on that attack button <laughs> and, you know, do the clumsy kill. But that's, you know, that's a last gasp. Uh, sort of effort for a a failed sequence. Like there is no, there is very rarely improvisation. It is all figuring out. Well, this 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 section only requires three or four moves. I can see everything in front of me, and then it's just a matter of your fingers doing that and uh, you <laughs> grappling with the clumsy platforming to do that. Um, but it is very much about a game in which there are there just aren't surprises. It is not a game about surprising you. It is about like. Th- that that falls in line with the whole meta design ethos of the game, which is clarity and information. And in and, and, and a game like Hitman and other th- 3D stealth games, like th- th- there is information in front of you, and you have tools to to uh, you know uh, muster out more. But it often is built on, all right, well, you have this, but then this other factor comes in that forces you to try and do something different, and that just doesn't happen in Mark of the Ninja. And I think that's like, especially both as a contrast. Um, you know that, that that works really well um, uh, relative to other games that are playing, you know, with similar design concepts. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that ends up in some ways making it more satisfying as you continue through the game and you start facing more complicated or demanding versions of the same problems. The traps keep getting deadlier. Uh, the right. enemies' modes of detection uh, start getting deadlier. They find different ways to put you under the gun without necessarily sticking a big timer on the entire level. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of things they do in that in that vein to encourage you to continue your growth as a ninja. Not only does your character level up and get new abilities, but you also start, this, this was my arc certainly, the more I played of this game, the more capable I started feeling. Yes, the problems were getting harder. I was having to stop and think a little bit more, but I was also feeling increasingly satisfied by the art of stealth that I was practicing the, you know, particularly those moments where you've timed the guards pathing and line of sight so perfectly that you are basically threading the needle Mm. like time and again, uh, between like a laser grid and, uh, you know, a a guard, a a guard patrol and what looks like it could have taken, you know, two, three minutes of like painstaking moves. You just like, blitzed through it and that feels really really cool and i think that is a nice approach if we're like if we're comparing it to the model offered by prey if you allow too much improvisation and improvisation without much cost you end up with a game that can kind of sabotage itself right i think where like once a game's stealth becomes so completely optional that you can always just kind of throw up your hands and start like, you know, spamming, you know, just like hammering on the keyboard. And that works the way it works in Prey uh, frequently. It becomes a little harder to have like a satisfying, tense denouement of the game. Uh, And I think by and large, Mark of the Ninja maintains that pretty much through to the end uh, with the exception of like, I think the last level is very clever is, is what I'll say for now as being kind of a break from it. I like that it doesn't just end with a cutscene. I like that you basically have your last real stealth mission and then the game ends with um, 
and in a, a, a narrative sequence through the uh, through through the through the lens of gameplay uh, mm-hmm. is is something I really enjoy. Uh, but I think one of the things that ends up being really crucial uh, for this game, and before we start talking about the plot, it's kind of the last thing I want to shout out here. Um, I love how gorgeous the user interface is and all yeah. the little cues letting you know about guard positions and detection zones. Uh, I think this is just, in addition to it being a gorgeous looking game, there is something really kind of mesmerizing and subtle and satisfying about the ripples. This is a game of ripples, right? It is, yeah. it is, it is a game of footfalls sort of washing across the screen, uh, heavy footfalls causing these giant uh, rings to arc outward that can catch the, the, the way like the, the birds will make a little yes. you know, flutter oh, as they go right. away. Like, like a lesser game, the birds wouldn't do anything, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, they wouldn't, they would just be, uh, you know, environmental art that is, that there is there as a flourish. And in this game, it's like not key, but it is one of like many things that they makes noise. And it's not just that they fly away, it's that they make their own little sound pattern. Yeah. And like it's it's just it's a very small touch in a game that is defined by a lot of small touches adding up into a greater whole. Yeah. I um I I think the the one of the reasons this sort of puzzle box design works so well is because everything is so clearly marked and and so and so clean but also it manages to do that without taking anything away from a really gorgeous uh 2D art style that feels like a cross between a comic book and you know 19th uh century like japanese art right is mm-hmm. is, is kind of is kind of how it feels uh and i like the way as you go through the game, the styles sort of transition as you go from sort of the more uh, glass and steel aesthetic of the Hessian Corporation into the sort of secret, uh, the secret headquarter areas of the of, of the clan uh, to the final the con- the final confrontations. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the about the arc of this story. Uh, we alluded to it in a, in a previous question the issue of insanity and appropriation uh, being aspects of the story. I think it is, it's weird, Patrick, you know, I, I agree to a degree. The story is kind of throwaway. This is a game that's about like playing the stealth game uh, at the same time. Uh, it does have a pretty, not super, not super involved, but, the way I mean, the like, story there, there are pretty theme. elaborate cutscenes, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not like a game that yeah. is uh, uh, like I was dismissing it largely because I, I'm playing it a second time. I'm just yeah. focused on the mechanics. Um, but you know, yeah, like these are high quality. Like people spend a lot of time building these cutscenes. Like it is a game th- that is considered the story it is telling. It is not. Um, it, maybe if it's not necessarily hugely material to the moment to moment gameplay, it is not intertwined. Um, necessarily there a one to one, but it's definitely not um, immaterial. Like it is not, it's not been uh, uh, ill considered. Like it is, a, it, thought has been put into uh, a story that is being, you know, uh, tied between these cutscenes, especially between stages. Yeah. Danielle. Yeah, I, I was going to say. I remember. I recall at the time again, just knowing Chris Dolan a little bit, uh, sort of from the, you know, 
indie game scene in Boston uh, at the time, which is where I lived, just knowing him a little bit, I remember it being kind of a big deal. I remember people talking a little bit about the story at the time and talking really about sort of the craft of narrative design in games, in indie games, especially. Uh, this is... God, this is around the time of that sort of the second wave, I suppose, of like indie explosions of, of Xbox Live being a thing at all, really, uh, you know, 2010, mm-hmm. 2011, 2012, and people kind of starting to talk about AAA indies in any real sense, uh, which was a, a whole thing at the time. It was, it was interesting. And of course, I was intoxicated by this idea at the time of like, oh my God, good, interesting grown-up stories and games that aren't just uh, about shooting each other. It's not just cutscenes in a, in a shooter, that sort of thing. So I, I went into this thinking like, hmm, am I going to really enjoy this story? Am I going to really get a lot out of it? And I, like I said earlier, it just kind of didn't really hit for me and I didn't pay that much attention to it outside of the fact that I thought the gameplay itself did a good enough job communicating like the feeling of being a ninja, the feeling of being powerful, of being quiet, of being very hyper-competent able to thread those needles. Mm -hmm. I felt like that did enough for the sort of general narrative than necessarily the sort of explicit cutscenes, which were beautiful, but yeah, didn't necessarily do that much for me. Yeah, it tells a basic story, but I think it ends up telling it pretty well by the end. I think something that is complicating here for me is that I think a lot of the characterization exists in the scrolls collectibles and not in the cutscenes. And I think this is maybe where the game runs into a little bit of a problem with making its narrative clear. It took me a really long time to realize that pretty much like most of most of the scrolls you were collecting were specifically uh, Master Azai's musings on his own history and record. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that do you really know what Master's Eye sounds like after a point? Do you remember that that's the dude's voice? Because, like, <laughs> at first it seems like these might just be collectibles. These are just random, like, you know, ninja-themed knickknacks you find on levels. <laughs> Here's a death haiku. It's, like, cool, whatever. Knickknacks, uh, yeah. <laughs> but what you're finding... But what you're finding actually is a lot of the motivation for the major characters in the story. So you st- what starts out as a pretty bog standard story between the cynical, evil uh, techno megacorp attacking the band of traditionalist uh, ninjas for, I don't know, some, some MacGuffin, uh, turns into a story about, you know, I think students and students and teachers uh, really ends up being the major theme of the story. Uh, you, your character, the mark of the ninja is that in the opening, at the, at the end of the opening tutorial, you're given these tattoos that supposedly imbue you with, you know, magical ninja powers, but also drive you mad. And therefore you have to uh, commit uh, seppuku at the end of whatever your mission is in order to protect your clan from your deepening madness. And this is where, you know, we started to run into some of those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously what, what you, you unveil after you've basically dealt with the entire megacorp and you've dealt with the best thing they can throw at you, uh, is the fact that your master, master Zai, was, Basically using you as a hitman, I guess is the way I would put it. Uh, that to a degree, this was less about 
protecting the clan than it was um, protect like <laughs> giving the giving the clan a monopoly on ninja tech IP is the way the way the entire thing feels and that is a standard enough uh pivot in a, in a story like this but one of the things that worked for me is through this game you uncover a lot of the memoirs of master zai and he does go from being this completely two-dimensional character of ah you thought he was good but actually he's bad we've seen a million of those <laughs> But it turns into a slightly more nuanced portrayal of Master Azai becomes the model of somebody who feels the old ways are no longer answers to the dilemmas of modernity and has basically adopted a knowingly cynical, if you can't beat him, join him uh, type mm. approach. And what comes through a lot of those scrolls and, and memoirs you find from him is kind of this air of like regret and sadness that I think ends up serving the game pretty well and serves serves the characterization and the uh, tension between these characters really well. But you wouldn't necessarily get that from the cutscenes. Uh, yeah, shocking. I think maybe this is like, you know, so illustrative of going back to a game like this from that period. I mean, certainly games are still struggling with this like very problem of like hiding like not just subtext, but like the most interesting things it has to say about its characters within pieces that have nothing to do with the relevant gameplay portions uh, or even like grand cutscenes that players are exposed to. But like this is very much of an era where you know this you know the the, the era of the original Bioshock in which like th this was the trendy way to do these things. But even Mark of the Ninja does an especially poor at least in, you know a game like Bioshock like you are explicitly told oh you're going to get interesting story through these collectibles that you find that reward you know exploring the space and we're deeply considering the environment you're in and <laughs> mark of the ninja like i played this game a bunch the first time and now i'm playing this game a second time and i still forgot that there was actual story i was just picking them up going to the option menu like clicking back like stop talking to me buddy like <laughs> i got the upgrade icon like we're good. And then moving on to the next thing. Um, this is illustrative of a game not understand, like trying to do something. Like you un you understand the design philosophy of like, oh, cool. Like we'll tie the upgrade tree to exploring the space. And like the spaces aren't that big. So the players are like almost guaranteed to come across any of these things. Um, at, if they're doing any sort of exploring of like uh, extra, uh, like, you know, vents they can go into. And then we're also going to like, we're going to blow their minds with like some, an extra understanding of like, like a, a more deeper uh, uh, piece of storytelling that's happening. But yeah, like it doesn't actually communicate more. Uh, it's not, it's not clearer about like, you should be paying attention to this. It does come across as, yeah, just like ninja haikus that are just, you can kind of throw away and move on with your life, which is, which is too bad. Um, because the fact that I, it, had that attitude even a second time um, sort of underscores the failing of them to communicate even what those things are from the get-go. This is also an era where it was like so such a divide between sort of the subtle storytelling cues and like the cutscenes. It's like there are two worlds here. Here are the cutscenes. And here are the collectibles that have a little bit of flavor text, maybe, that is just, you know, some writer got to have a field day one day. They had a lot of coffee, and they really just had so much fun writing a ton of incidental dialogue or a ton of incidental stuff, as opposed to 
I'm not saying this is a solved problem, but uh, more sophisticated games now do feel a little bit like there's a little bit more interplay between those two sort of modes of storytelling, uh, of explicit storytelling. I'm not even talking about like narrative through gameplay, but more there was environmental storytelling and then there was the cutscene. And this, yeah, this feels of a piece with that era in some ways, which is not necessarily a failing. It's just, hey, maybe maybe some games have figured out a little bit more uh, subtlety in that direction. Well, I, I do feel like I know that moment you're talking about where I, I think there was kind of a, in the same way that like in film, there can be a prejudice against using voiceover. Yeah. Uh, or even, or even it's a visual medium. Really, you should be able to tell your story about dialogue at all, which I think is an asinine, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I will, I will uh, beat you to death with uh, Billy Wilder scripts if it comes to different that. stories require um, different things. That's well, the, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I think in this era, and I'm not sure necessarily that this ne- would have like a, been something on Nels Anderson's mind or or Chris Dolan's mind, but I think in this era there was a little bit of this snobbishness about um, narrative through gameplay. Uh, like you alluded to, uh, trying to sort of cut down on the amount of storytelling that is being wrapped up in cutscenes or expository uh, lore dumps midway through the game, <laughs> trying to weave that into, uh, trying to weave that a little more organically into the story. I think the result is something that Mark of the Ninja is a game that I don't fully know where the story lives it's a weird thing it feels really disjointed the characterization is happening in these scrolls you find the plot beats are advancing through these cutscenes, which often feel i don't know just they feel detached from the gameplay see like the sheer number of times where a cutscene would end and a new level would start and I would feel like I missed something. Like the, nothing but the end of that cutscene <laughs> suggests the space I find myself in now. Like there were all these little discontinuities uh, in the game that I think end up making what would have been a simple and effective story feel weirdly disjointed and distant and in the end more disposable than I think it necessarily meant to be. And so I think it does end up falling even flatter when the end of the story is starting to culminate on these, do you choose your master who made these compromises to secure the future of the clan? Do you, do you choose your potentially imaginary friend slash symptom of the toxins <laughs> and madness being given to you by the tattoo? Is the madness real at all? Uh, this is a thing, again, important things that come through the scrolls. You find things from Master Dosan, who's sort of the old-timey ninja who... <laughs> Like th- that's totally his vibe, right? He's yeah. he's oh ninjas! I remember you guys. That's that's kind of his character, and he's the one who sort of reveals that Master is eyes up to no good and has been lying to the clan. But one of the things that he hints at in the cutscene, but then I think you find, uh, I think you find a scroll from him late in the game, is talking about this entire idea of the sacrificial champion. Uh, Basically arguing that from the moment the clan started using these kids, and they were kids, specifically the clan started using promising students to basically become 
these champions who would kill themselves at the end of their mission. Yeah. And the idea was that did it like the teachers were forbidden from using the, the marks and it became a, the job of the students because the students were controllable and, and it also made them yeah. dangerous. And I think that like, this is a cool tension that the game could have explored, right? This idea of teachers, mentors, fearing their mentees, uh, resent, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think a lot of us who've had like mentoring relationships have had that moment where you start to suspect what I want to do with my abilities is diverging from the vision you have for them. And that can be a really tense and fraught thing. And I think this game alludes to that. And I think explicitly like there's a metaphor here for how eventually, uh, you know, not only do students outgrow their masters, but the way that masters and teachers can sometimes like have that little air of like fear and distrust and resentment toward their students and seek to control them past when they should. I think that's in this game. But none of it quite meshes because ultimately it's a series of ninja puzzle boxes with a story loosely, you know, tying them all together. Uh, so I, I, I end up in a, in a weird place with the, with the narrative of this game because I like what's there. I think it's, it's decently executed. But Danielle, I, I do agree. It, it feels like it's, a piece of, it, it's of a piece with its time. I also think... This is a very clay approach to narrative. I think Invisible Ink again has a similar. Eh, we got a loose narrative. Here's a here's a <laughs> premise, and a campaign flows from that. But it's a strange thing. They they're very good at um, thematic enhancements for their games. Narrative does not seem like a focus of that studio, even when they're making linear narrative games. Is a is well, that's what they've kind of doubled down on since, right? Like, I mean, Don't Starve is thematic trappings in which you paint your own story based on you know the the, the you know w- what happens as you try not to starve <laughs> how long you don't like starve that. yeah <laughs> uh i forget the name of that other one that they you know launched last year um oxygen not I, included we thought had a i think yeah oxygen not included yeah. which is you know riffing in the same direction you know i mean that's they clearly have design strengths in that arena um and and in some ways maybe have recognized that hey what if we just lean into the direction that's working for us and abandon the thing that seems like we're kind of just plastering it on top and uh, it's not working as well, which is too bad because I like, I think, you know, I never played Invisible Ink, but I, I was desperate for, if not a sequel to Mark of the Ninja, then something that was playing in the same same ideas and, and went in some different direction because it just seemed like there was so much more uh, they could have done with it. But, um, you know, that, that studio is gone in some... I mean, Don't Starve basically changed the future of that studio in, in ways that are less interesting to me because I don't like those types of games, but clearly has made them some money. <laughs> yeah. Probably good if you want like a stable gig making games. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to, and people that like don't starve seem to really like don't starve. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock them uh, for that. Should we, should we jump into the questions that we got? Yeah. Um, Pat, do you want to read this, uh, this, this email from Bryce? Yes. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, Bryce writes, um, I find myself often playing great games several years after the release. I don't, uh, I don't have the bandwidth to play everything, and it's much more cost-effective to wait for sales and price chops. Mark the Ninja is a game that I uh, played uh, for the first time in 2018. I found that it felt really dated and simplistic, and my experience didn't match what I read in reviews. So my question is, how should someone like me figure out the right time to play a game like Mark of the Ninja? 
Games don't all age equally well, and I have not been very successful uh, with judging which games I need to prioritize and which ones will still be amazing if I get them five plus years later. For context, XCOM is another game uh, from 2012 that I only started playing recently, and I found it held up very well. Thanks. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I, well, I think this podcast has us arguing uh, <laughs> that Mario the Ninja holds up um, in some ways, even if uh, it has aged uh, sort of appropriately in the direction that um, a lot of, especially genre games, uh, tend to, as those genres are uh, expounded and refined and, and shifted up. Um, strategy is certainly one of those, although arguably not much has happened, like post-XCOM. Like, there's been more XCOM, but it's mostly XCOM dominating that style of game. Mutant Year Zero is, you know, playing in that similar space, but it's 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 mostly a lot of XCOM, post-XCOM. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's, like, a, I have, like, a very... Like, five-plus years is a long time, right? Like, just so much changes in games. Five-plus years is enough time for major games that are seismic shifts to then ripple in to other games, both big and small. And so I think at the five-year... I mean, five years maybe is the mark, right? Like, maybe five years is, like, long enough for AAA to catch up, and it's it's certainly long enough for very small to medium-sized games to begin... Uh, running away with design ideas. I don't know that I'll, I can't think of many games that have picked up the mantle of Mark of the Ninja specifically. Uh, not Nothing is immediately coming to mind, but like in a broader sense, like five years is probably a decent like checkpoint of like, all right, if I'm playing a game five years later, there's a good chance I've played things since that are going to make this tougher um, to jump back into. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, what all y'all, if you think five years is maybe maybe an appropriate marker. It depends on the case. I mean, for this, I think you hit on something really important here, Patrick, that there have not been a ton of 2D stealth games uh, of this nature. Or even something that took Mark of the Ninja and applied it to a 3D space. Yeah. I'm just trying to... Not a ton. I'm sure there are some games that have have taken some of these uh, sort of approaches, but... Not a t- this this still feels relatively unique uh, in certain ways, uh, which is I appreciate it and I think helped it age maybe more gracefully than some games that are like, oh, yeah, there have been twenty seven of these in the last five years and each one is a well, little. Yeah, it, it hasn't <laughs> aged because no one's done anything else right. with yeah. it largely, right? So it's like it hasn't it hasn't been refined because it is still the thing that it was when it came yeah, out. Exactly, I do think it, it's sort of also a, a framing thing and a hype thing, and that is that is just a pitfall of this world of games that you know you will hear so many things and you will hear so much criticism and you'll hear the the sort of the first wave the second wave the third wave the seventh wave by the time you know you're playing something um in this case i think the fact that it's been seven years has actually helped me appreciate this game i think if i played it three years after it came out i would have had maybe a less exciting or less satisfying experience uh i think sometimes even a little more time can be helpful because it's like oh yeah i heard about this a while ago but i've forgotten half of the things i had heard about and i'm going in almost relatively fresh again at this point but it 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 so depends uh and it's also of course a question uh it sounds like of cost and of money and time and and all those other things that are always really complicated in which case um i know we've advocated a, a few times here for uh things like the Xbox One Games Pass and, and a couple of other ways that are like, oh, this is a relatively inexpensive way of at least playing some of the games that are kind of coming out these days. But of course, there was nothing like that in 2012. So we'll see how helpful that is. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's tough. I think the fact, again, the fact that this game 
hasn't really been replicated elsewhere. It doesn't feel out of date. Uh, at the same time, it's always a tough thing. What do you play right now? What is going to be enjoyable? I think a lot of us end up in a position of not only is there a lot to choose from that is current and new that people are talking about, but also there is a lot of fraught guilt associated with <laughs> games piling up uh, on our virtual shelves that we haven't played. And so uh, I think there's a you know a broader question here about uh, how the question of what should I play right now has become so incredibly complicated in a way it didn't used to be. Uh, but I, I think this is a case of this game holds up if only because, and I don't think that's the case that this is the only reason, but it, it holds up because there is no game that has gone to school on Mark of the Ninja and surpassed it and supplanted it, which is something that you encounter with a lot of other influential games where the early editions or the early attempts become the prototypes for more accessible, more enjoyable uh, games that, that came out later. That didn't really happen in this case. So uh, if 2D stealth puzzles sound cool to you, uh, this is... It's kind of the game. This is it. <laughs> uh, Danielle, will you want to read this uh, last email from Magnus? Yes. I love this, uh, actually, quite a bit. Um, or Hytal Magnus? Hytal Magnus. Okay, cool. Hey, I was playing. That's how it starts. It starts with a hey. So, hey, I was playing New Super Mario Brothers U earlier this week, and after collecting one of the star coins, I died. As you might expect, the coin didn't stay collected when a fresh Mario spawned. Makes a certain sense, but in Mark of the Ninja, most everything is recorded at the exact moment you achieve it. Doesn't matter if you return to the last checkpoint or even quit to the main menu on the spot. Incidentally, these games both originally released in 2012. A lot of games go one way or the other with collectibles and achievements, so I'm curious. What are your thoughts on this ancillary design difference? Do you have a preference? I personally lean towards Mark of the Ninja, though I acknowledge that it's circumstantial and likely won't suit every game. My thought that is that if I've conclusively proven myself capable of doing the thing, being asked to repeat it feels arbitrary. Love the site. Thanks for everything you do. I agree. I, I prefer, in general, when things sort of stay collected, um, even though that's uh, corny and cheesy in some uh, instances. I know Celeste... Uh, for example, you had to get the collectible. I forget. Was it strawberries? I think, I think it was strawberries. Yes. yes. But you had to get the strawberry and then finish the level. You couldn't just, you know, sort of like, all right, I got the strawberry on that run. And now I'll finish the level on the other run. So like there are very distinct areas or distinct games and distinct uh, design paradigms where it makes sense. I think sense. you could quit the level, though, <gasps> and it would keep it. Oh, really? There was a way around it? I, I think that would okay, be cool. true. Okay, cool. All right. It's been been a minute since I played that. Yeah, that game. was like ten oh. years ago because twenty eighteen was ten years long, of course. But I do I do like that when it's like, all right, you did the thing, buddy, checked off. Now now focus on something else because of the way that sometimes extra achievements don't always feel completely uh, inherent to having the best gameplay experience. And in those cases, I'm always going to be like, uh, yeah, just give me the checkbox. I don't care. But in the cases where it is, like this collectible is in such a place or this thing that you have to do is uh, designed to actually show you another way of playing the game or a cooler path or, or show you a specific skill. In those cases, I'm fine with it being really inherent to sort of uh, finishing the objective. Yeah, no, I'm 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 on a team of Mark of the Ninja. Once you've got that thing, that's the thing. I mean, it's 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 deeply irritating to. I've been in plenty of scenarios in in games where 
I was then pushed off from ever collecting another collectible again, specifically because, oh, so I, I did the hard thing, and then I made just a you know a, a, an innocent yeah. mistake that like leads me to die at the, before the next checkpoint finish the stage. Now I got to go back and do that again. Like nah, like that's just not gonna happen. And uh, I, I think the the notion of being it's not even being forgiving. It's it's recognizing the achievement was earned, and you know I mean there are certainly can be scenarios in which having players juggle that stuff can create a certain amount of tension. But I'm 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 very much in the camp of if you've done it once, you've done it um, because uh, especially with things that are optional. D- putting additional friction and layers between the player and and doing this optional bit is going to encourage the bad habit, you know, the bad habit from a designer perspective, which is it's just to skip it. Like right. why, if I'm not being rewarded for doing the thing, um, you know, yeah. So I, I'm very much, I, I actually, it took me a while to realize that the game was doing this because most games don't do this. Most games ask you to complete the objective over and over again, um, despite dying. And I really enjoy the fact that Mark the Ninja was like ex- sort of exceedingly progressive in that uh, sense. And then it's just like, hey, man, cool, you're good. <laughs> like, move on. Yeah, this uh, th- this game will break in funny ways, though, due to this. Like, <laughs> I definitely got through some sequences where, uh, Patrick, to borrow your phrase, the achievement was not earned. The progress was not <laughs> actual. Like, I literally had a run, like, somewhere in Hessian Tower, there was one of those many rooms with, like, a heavy security vault door, uh, mm-hmm. one of those motion sensors, and a guard, and another guard on the other side of the vaulted, uh, of, the, of the vault door, and a planter. And a whole bunch of things went wrong, uh... There was a lot of shooting, a lot of killing people, a lot of being shot, <laughs> and I died basically as I just dove toward the planter on the other side of this door into the next room, uh, and I respawned hidden in that planter. <laughs> and good. Hey, you know, no alarm good, raised. You know, All the you. guards were still alive, <laughs> and like I think I might have gotten credit for like. Clean run through that room, basically. Yeah. Even though the oh, that's yeah. one of the sub objectives, yeah, good. it was that's it was good. great. Uh, so definitely that that broke down in some interesting ways. Uh, we just got I, the uh, high sign from our producer. Was there something else? I just, briefly, just as an aside on that, like I, uh, you know, because you get a bonus, you know, if you hide someone in an event or in a uh, uh, sort of like a trash bin. I think one of my favorites would be like in those sequences where I'd, the easiest thing to do was to put a guy in the trash bin. Take his ass out. Put the next guy in the trash bin. Take his ass out. Put the next guy in the trash bin. All right, three guards are in there, and I get the bonuses for all of them. But then there's just this stack of dead bodies next to the trash bin. It's like whatever. Give me my thousand Game points. Logic. Thank you. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that concludes this episode of uh, Waypoint One Hundred One. Sorry for the abrupt ending, uh, but it sounds like we're being evicted uh, from from the recording booth very soon. Control so room. we need to we need to go. Uh, we'll pick out another game to cover very soon. We'll give you a heads up. Uh, it sounds like the Kingdom Hearts thing keeps getting thrown around uh, the chat. It, we may not be able to. Avoid uh, no, it no, I will go. I will. I will. I will straight up uh, confirm that uh, it's not a it's not a a one a one hundred one, but. Uh, uh, Natalie and I are going to record a series of Kingdom Hearts focused podcasts mm-hmm. that will function, you know, in a one on one ethos sort of way. Um, 
where we are going to play the New Kingdom Hearts. Uh, we're taking it seriously. This is not going to be snarky. I'm going to drop the shtick. I'm, I, we're going to we're going to play Kingdom Hearts, and I believe that Austin, who is not going to play Kingdom Hearts, is going to be our uh, sort of our, our host and guide. Uh, the to the the a- the average person who is confused about what's happening. Um, so I think we're going to do a, at least a series of those for the first couple of weeks after um, that game comes out. We're supposed to get code ahead of the game's release, so hopefully we'll be able to drop something um, as soon as that game. Magical out. dream drop. Yes. All right. Uh, until we meet again, uh, Patrick, where, where can people find you? At Patrick Klubik. Danielle. At Danielle R I. And you can find me at Rob Zachney on Twitter.com. Follow all that we do at waypoint.vice.com. Follow us on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash waypoint or on facebook.com slash waypointvice. Uh, be sure to join us again for our next podcast. Uh, until then, uh, for Patrick, for Danielle, uh, this is Rob Zachney. Uh, vanishing in a puff of smoke. <laughs>
Um, and there is a video of like me and my brother, well, my brother trying, but me singing uh, coming out of our shelves and like running around the room. Um, it's on a tape in my closet. I just need to get it digitized. And I've been going to get I've that on YouTube. Yeah. To do that. Anyway, we should probably record this podcast because you're going to have to. Yeah, let's do it. I have to bounce in 30, so. 